Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering five conversations from episode 40, our review of last week's Paris Nash conference, plus from the vault, our most downloaded conversation ever, which comes from Paris Nash 2021. This conversation starts with a question from Louise Campbell about whether utilizing CAP will provide additional insight here. Laurent Castero responds that CAP is more related to inflammation and steatosis than to fibrosis. Scott Friedman agrees. Laurent goes on to suggest that MRIPDFF would be the ideal test for addressing this issue, but it's not cost-effective in regular practice. Therefore, he uses DCTE measures, including CAP, not so much because the results aren't that accurate, but because they're extremely helpful and the numbers he provides are motivating the patients. This is a point Louise has made over time, again and again, in the life of the podcast. Louise goes on to ask a different question. How activation of stellate cells depends on disease state. And Scott notes that most stellate cell activation is driven by inflammation, not fat. However, all this raises two more questions, whether lipotoxic mediators drive fibrosis directly or after inflammation. And more broadly, given today, the current clinical tools for measuring fat are pretty broad and not specific enough to provide a clear answer on this question. On this point, Jorn Schottenberg notes that as the liver progresses towards cirrhosis, it loses fat, which makes the entire issue far more complex. I asked whether patient compliance and adherence might be affected negatively by uncertainty about meaning of results such as we're describing here, and Scott agrees. The rest of this conversation centers around an observation from Scott Friedman about the way that using GLP-1s and other ingredients to treat obesity will complicate this entire task assessing the disease, and knowing when we are treating correctly and assessing adequately. Along with NASHTAG, Paris NASH is one of two famously small, famously science-based, publicly available events every year. We cannot really cover the entire meeting in a single wrap-up episode. Frankly, we've never been able to do so. But this conversation neatly captures some of the key dynamics in the meeting, and particularly ones around NIT. It's a lot to digest, and frankly, I had to chew on it multiple times before I wrote our summaries. So sit back, listen, learn, enjoy, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn description discussion group. Louise Campbell. Can I ask a question, Lauren? I'm going to presume the study didn't include CAP and it was purely the stiffness that it was looking at. And I wonder whether or not we don't utilise CAP as much as we should, particularly now that we have it, because certainly in my practice and most of the time when we were looking at the patients, if the CAP came down, the inflammation came down. So we're able to determine to some extent the level of inflammation is dropping as the CAP score. And it's used in alcohol as part of detox as well. We look at the CAP to invigorate and look at that and then the stiffness settles and the cap, we keep coming down with detox and rehab over a number of time. Are we not combining both factors for something like Fibroscan that can show us where there are changes in the liver that then affect liver results? I think Stephen Harrison on here regularly says to look at inclusion criteria for a NASH study, you really need a Fibroscan of over 12.9 to account for the AST and the inflammation that's going on. So by watching cap drop, there could be some more detail. And we do need the evidence to say that that is reduction in inflammation rather than just purely effect. Because you can see fatty livers with normal enzymes or you can see fatty livers with really high ALTs, ASTs, which I suspect is where we're seeing that fibrosis stage against people who say it's just benign fat and no fat in the liver is benign. So are we not utilising what we now have as well as we should? Laurent Castera. Now, so to your point, um, my understanding is that CAP is more 
related to steatosis and inflammation. The truth is we don't have much data again per liver biopsy. I think, I mean, the, the interesting study would be to compare MRI PDFF, that is, of course, a much more sophisticated technology and more accurate than CAP. But the major advantage of CAP, in my opinion, if a drugs go to the market, not sure everyone will have access to MRI PDFF, for instance. So you might need a technology that is maybe not as sophisticated, but that is able probably to capture the changes in steatosis, for instance. For the, the time being, I think I use it to motivate the patients, you know, especially when they lose weight. So you're not really sure about the respective influence of, of course, I mean, if you're losing weight, you might also decrease steatosis. But I think the numbers talk to the patients. You know, they like to see they, they come up, they have 350 or even 400. And then after six months or even a year, they come back, they have lost weight, and they let's say they have a 280. So, of course, this is very simple medicine, but I consider this is significant. But I'm quite cautious on the variation of CAP because we don't have a well-designed study showing that is clearly correlated first to steatosis decrease and of course uh, on the midterm to outcome. Another issue is there's some, uh, a few study actually, and it's a bit controversial. What is the influence of steatosis on liver stiffness and especially of CAP? There were some studies suggesting that if your CAP is high, there's a risk of overrating fibrosis, liver stiffness and fibrosis when there is a lot of steatosis. I have to say it's not completely clear what is the clear influence of steatosis. Scott, can I then ask on that particular point whether if there's any stellite change difference between inflammation at different levels of steatosis within the liver? Scott Friedman. Absolutely. I mean, simply put, most of the activation of stellate cells will be driven by inflammation, not by fat. Uh, having said that, you also have this concept, which I think is real, of lipotoxic mediators coming from fatty hepatocytes. Whether those lipotoxic mediators are directly driving fibrogenesis or are inciting inflammation to drive fibrogenesis is not clear, but certainly not all fat is the same. Unfortunately, the tools that we use clinically to measure fat are very crude and simply measure the volume or the amount of fat in the whole liver, whether it's MRPDFF or CAP. So we can't really tell which kind of fat the patient has, uh, but I do think we're going to come to realize that just because you see fat on a CAP or an MRPDFF doesn't really tell you anything about the inflammatory milieu or very little. Jörn Schattenberg. Yeah. And just to add, and I think we've said this before here, as the liver progresses to cirrhosis, we're losing fat. So some of those signals are seen with MRI PDFF to a certain extent with CAP. And I, I share Laurent's cautioning, which is scientifically motivated in this experience that CAP, we don't have as much data. For the individual patient here, I hear you, Louise, I've seen those patients, you know, I put them on interval fasting or something, CAP goes down, they're very happy, they feel reinforced, and they're going to continue doing this. So it's more of an individual tool here than a general use. Roger Green. That's interesting though, because there is a behavioral component to this, right? As we get drugs, we're going to need to keep patients on them and get patients on them and keep patients on them. And going back to Scott's initial question, if you try to impress on a patient the severity of a disease, but it's only going to work 25% of the time, and we're not going to be able to tell you whether it's working for a significant period of time, uh, there's an inherent uh, tension in that message. If I really should be worried about this, I want to know quickly what's happened. Behaviorally, that gets tough to manage. And I think it's tougher to manage when you get out the side hepatology 
practice where the doctor doing the prescribing isn't going to have the sophisticated ability to explain and put it into context. Yeah, and obviously what makes the liver disease uniquely challenging is you can't track symptoms. You know, if you're putting a patient on medication for rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, all you need to do is ask them how they're feeling and they'll tell you whether the drug is working. And in most cases, the placebo effect aside, in most cases that will tell you whether the drug is effective. We have no such benefit in tracking patients with liver disease on meds. Look, in my own life, I've seen that 10 years ago. If if you're being treated for adjuvant cancer, right, and there's no ability to know whether it's going metastatic or not for some significant period of time, which there might not be. It's a very, very interesting way to live. Let's just put it that way. Now there, um, there wasn't a major issue of compliance because the nature of therapy was once every three weeks show up. But if it involved daily medication, I could see patients, some patients at least, in the absence of data over time, needing greater encouragement to keep, inducement to keep complying. We're not there yet because we're not on the medications, but it's, it's going to be an interesting issue as we go forward, I think. And to pivot a little bit in the remaining few minutes, the 800-pound, or now it's shrinking to 600-pound gorilla, are these weight loss drugs. We don't really know how they impact liver disease, how consistently, which patients will have a benefit. We do know in the phase two trial of semaglutide that there was an improvement in NASH resolution, but they didn't move the needle on fibrosis. So uh, that's going to become a huge variable because we're going to find that more and more patients with metabolic syndrome are on one or more of these drugs. Terzepatide, semaglutide, they're going to permeate the entire clinical space and we're going to need to account for that. My prediction, which is a total educated guess, is that there are some patients who will have a liver benefit from weight loss and defatting the liver and others who don't. And they will be incumbent upon us to figure out which are which. Yeah, so the other question that goes along with that, I think, Scott, and then we'll kind of jump, and I don't know if this was covered in the meeting or not, is when you go to the uh, dual and uh, triple agonist and cretin agents, where the second mode of action is more directly tied to the liver than GLP-1 is, does that change the calculus for the relationship between weight loss and effect on liver performance? Well, we have no idea, and I'm not aware of any studies that confirm any direct benefit on fibrosis for GLP-1 or agonists or glucagon agonists or any of the other drugs. The, the, the hope and expectation is that if they benefit liver disease, it will be through its metabolic effects on liver and maybe adipose as well. Uh, that's exactly right. If my camera was on, I was nodding. I was solo on nodding. We don't have that evidence yet. And as a matter of fact, they didn't show that. I'll, I'll bite 72 weeks of treatment in uh, smaller. So we'll have to learn and see where it ends up. Yeah, see my further comment to Scott's point. I mean, in addition, the fact that drugs have different mechanisms of action, some there is no weight loss and some like the one you, you mentioned before, the incretin, there is weight loss. But this is a major confounding factor when using non-invasive tests, especially, for instance, liver stiffness. And we don't really know how to appreciate the effects, you know, whether it's related to the decrease in BMI or a true effect on fibrosis. And coming back to Jorn's point initially, I completely agree that it's very likely that we will not use a single NIT, but what I call unrelated NITs going in the same direction. So let's say in a world without a gold standard, concordance is very important. And let me explain. If you're using, for instance, health tests and liver stiffness, they are two unrelated because they have different approaches. And the drawback of each test does not interfere with the other test. For instance, BMI has no influence on health whether it has an influence on liver stiffness using VCT, for instance. And for instance, if you have patients with BMI above 40, you should not trust a liver stiffness measurement and start treatment, for instance. This is a major drawback of uh, the use of VCT. So if you have at least two or maybe three, you could use Pro-C3 as well, 
or another one going in the same direction. I think this is a very strong signal that something is happening. But still, this is not yet in the clinic because at the individual level, it will be very difficult. And then we'll also likely go to a la carte treatment, you know, combining different drugs with different mechanisms of action. So this add another layer of complexity. So uh, in, in a nutshell, I think NITs are very promising because I think everyone is convinced here that we, we need to get away from liver biopsy. But to implement this in clinical practice, we're not there, there definitely. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with coverage of the FDA's two-day NIT workshop. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and enjoy the last weekend of what is the summer season for most of us in the Northern Hemisphere and the winter for those in the Southern Hemisphere. We'll see you back next week. Bye-bye now.